Well, good morning, church, and welcome in to MCC. For those who are new with us, can we just let them know how glad we are they take some time out of their weekend to be here with us today? Yep. Now, if you are new, I'd like for you to stand up, give a speech, tell us why you chose this place. I'm just kidding. Now, you've been to that place before, and you felt like it wasn't going to happen today, and it's not. So uh, we are really glad you're here. Uh, we'd love to get to know you, get to meet you. You can fill out that next step card. It's right there in the chair in front of you. And um, you can go back there to the back. If you're an extrovert and you want to meet some folks, we'd love to be able to in- introduce you to some people. If you're like, hey, I'm not about that today, uh, you can just slide that in one of those little black boxes back there in the back, and you can do that there. If you're online, fill in a link, uh, and you can do that. Hey, today, uh, before we dive into the message, I want us to pray. And one of the things you may have noticed uh, that we've been doing a little bit more often is actually taking some time to do that at different points in our gatherings together. And the reason we do that is because we don't believe that we just come to church, that we actually are the church, and that when the church gathers together, there should be the head of the church, Jesus, invited into the moment so that he can actually make our lives, not better, different, different than what they are. And the reason that we've been doing that a little bit more intentionally is because we we know that there's this propensity for us sometimes to confuse feelings with spiritual formation, with coming into a thing and experiencing something, whether it was like, man, that was really motivational and I'm fired up and I'm going to go kick Monday in the face and I can't wait. Like get behind me, Satan. And you're, you're like, I'm, I ordered the not, behind, you know, not today Satan shirt online. Like I'm ready. I'm fired up. And then sometimes you can walk out of here and, you, and it's, your, you know, it's one of those messages where you walk by me afterwards and you're like, did you read my mail this week? Like, do you see my text messages? You are in my kitchen and I didn't need to, or I didn't want to hear that, but I needed to hear that. And you can kind of have those things and you can walk out if you're not careful misdiagnosing a feeling of something as actual change. And the reason I want to lean into that and the reason why I want us to be able to be a church that prays before we really dive into God's word is because there's something that's happening below the surface, whether you realize it or not, in your life and my life all the time. And that something that's happening is called spiritual formation. Now, sometimes we can hear a word like that and you just write off the cuff and go, oh, spiritual formation, that's something that happens at church. No, 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 friend. You can be a Christian, you can be a Muslim, you can be an atheist, you can be, a, I don't know, you can be whatever you want to be. You can be a bowl of Fruit Loops. And spiritual formation, if you want to identify as that way, because it is 2022 or one or whatever it is, um, you can be whatever you want to be. And spiritual formation is happening, okay? Because there is a, a mental dynamic to us, an emotional dynamic to us, a, a, a spiritual dynamic to us. And at any given moment, that is being formed into something. You don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to be born again to have spiritual formation happen in your life. And for those of you who are born again, for those of you who are Christians, spiritual formation is happening all day in, all day out. Now, sometimes that spiritual formation is capital S spiritual formation, as in the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, is actually forming you more and more in a spiritual manner from the inside out into the image of God's Son, Jesus. Now that's what we wanna happen, that's what we hope happens. But every time that you open up and you will start watching the news, spiritual formation is happening. Every time that you go to work and you listen to whatever's being talked about there, spiritual formation is happening. Every time we read the newspaper, every time that we log on to social media and scroll through what we scroll through, here's what you need to understand and know, spiritual formation is happening at all of those given moments and all of those given places. And what we're doing is we're saying, we are crazy if we think that we can do all of that all week long 
and then come here in this moment and then just sing three and a half songs, three or four songs and listen to a message and just hope and pray that enough spiritual formation happens so that we're Jesus to our coworkers, that we're Jesus to our kids, that we're Jesus to our friends and family. That's crazy. And so what happens then is a lot of churches, rather than being formative, they become preformative. And so we can put on a good performance. We can have really excellent music. We can get tearjerker songs. I can tell a really sad story about a dog dying at the end and we can play a song at the end and everybody's gonna be in tears. And you'll walk out going, that was a really good performance. But what the church has always been designed to be is not to be preformative. It's designed to be formative, to form us into the body of Christ. We're gonna get into this a little bit later in the book of Ephesians. He says, what God's desire for the church is, is that she would be washed by the cleansing of the word so that it would be spotless and blameless as a bride presented to Christ. That's what we're called to be. So that means that a really good Sunday performance won't cut it. A really good Sunday performance in children's ministry won't cut it. A really good performance in what's happening in student ministry will not cut it. Spiritual formation has to happen. And in order for spiritual formation to happen, we just are crazy enough to believe that we better invite the Holy Spirit to do that in our lives. Because he's, like if spiritual formation is gonna happen, and I want it to happen for you, the only way it's going to happen for you is if the Holy Spirit, capital S, Spirit, is invited in to the preaching of God's word, is inviting in to the worship of the prayer of praise as we sing songs to him. That's where the things that will make what we pray possible, possible when we say, I don't wanna just go to church so I can check off this moralistic box in my life. I wanna go here and leave differently. Having gathered with the body of Christ, I then go scatter out into the community to be salt in a, in a, in a, in a decaying world, to be light in a dark world. And so what I'm gonna invite you into here in this moment is that prayer. And again, I'm not trying to replace your quiet time. And so you can't say, well, I was, I was at church you know, Sunday and we, we sat for a little while and we prayed and then we read the Bible. And so I don't need to do that this week. No, 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 you for sure need to do that. But what I, what I do know is, and this is why I feel strongly about us making this part of our habit and our rhythm as a church when we gather together. One, the early church did it, they would, they would be in, the early church, if they showed up and came to one of our gatherings, they were probably blown away by the lack of prayer because it was centrifugal to their gatherings because they knew that at any given moment, they were gonna get arrested and thrown in prison. Now, we don't necessarily have that happen yet, but they knew that that was their only hope. They knew that Rome was gonna be throwing infant baby girls and boys into the streets and they knew that they had a God who had adopted them as sons and daughters and that they could not just walk by the infants that Rome was throwing on the streets and they had to do something about it, but they didn't know how to do that, something about it because they were all in poverty themselves. They knew their only hope of surviving and thriving and being the church that, that Jesus died for them to be was only through the power of prayer. And somehow we got away from that. And I wanna try to straw us back because I think that's where real, something real is a real encounter with Jesus. And I don't know what you showed up longing for today, but I hope it's that. And so I'm gonna invite you to, to pray, to talk with him, to meet with the God of all creation, to meet with the son who gave his life for you and to beg the Holy Spirit in this room to form you more and more into his image. Take this time to pray. Jesus, in a world full of chaos and noise, it is a blessing 
to enter into moments of silence. Moments where we can talk to you. And Jesus, I pray that nobody feels shame today that this conversation they're hopefully having with you is the first of this week or the first of this month. I pray that they know that you're a, a father who has been anxious and looking forward to this moment. You knew this was coming. And you've turned an ear to them to hear what they would have to say. And Jesus, I pray that we would now turn the eyes of our heart and the ears of our heart to your word. We speak to you in prayer and you speak to us through your word. And we ask you to do that, to show us the truths that can change, to show us who we are. And Jesus, I ask you to do the, the miraculous thing of raising the dead of allowing your word to be what actually takes someone who is destined for an eternity away from you in the horror that is hell and that you would save a soul. It is only by your will, it is only by your power that I can stand on a stage like this and be able to proclaim this gospel. And so I pray that you would remove me so that what they see and what they hear is, is just you. You're our only hope. We need you. We need you. In your name, amen. If you got a Bible, I would invite you to go to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two is where we're at. We as a church have been going kind of word by word, verse by verse through this book of Ephesians. The Ephesians is really less of a, a book and more of a letter that the apostle Paul, a great Christian missionary who was charged by Jesus by being the preacher to the Gentiles, being the missionary to the Gentiles, the Gentiles, anybody who's not a Jewish person. And so Jesus was a Jew, um, essentially tapped this guy, Paul, who was a Jew on the shoulder and said, hey, uh, please stop trying to kill people who are trying to follow after me. And actually, I actually wanna take you out of your um, nationalism. I wanna take you out of your racism. I wanna take you out of thinking that the Jews are the be all end all. And I'm actually gonna turn you so far away from the direction you were heading. And I'm gonna take you into this whole other group of people. And you're gonna see that this God who I am, this Jesus who I am, I died for all. And I'm gonna actually let you be the one who tells all these people who are non-Jewish that now they're actually in on this love, favor, and kindness that can only come from God. And so Paul goes and does that. He gets through the Mediterranean. He gets on ships and starts preaching to church after church after church. And he's planting these churches. And what we've been doing is we've been going through this book of Ephesians and showing us how Paul tells the church in Ephesus, this is now who you are. In chapters one through three, he's explained to them, this is who you are in Christ. And then what we're gonna get into is in chapters four through six, he says, now this is what it means to be in Christ in Ephesus. And so today we're gonna dive into chapter two. I talked to you a little bit last week. Uh, chapter two, verses one through 10 is essentially Paul laying out the entirety of the gospel. You could take verses one through 10 and you pretty much have the distilled essence of the gospel in those 10 verses. So let's read them together. Got a Bible, Ephesians one, we'll go, uh, Ephesians two, we'll go verses one through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that is now at work and those who are disobedient. 
All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it's by grace you have been saved through faith and is not of yourselves, is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do, that the church say amen. That's good stuff. Okay, so to break down kind of what we're gonna be doing. So last week, we dove into this, who I am before salvation. If you missed that, please go back. This is, that's essential to kind of understand where we're going today about what Jesus did at my salvation. And then next week, we're gonna talk about this next one of what happens after my salvation. These are all just mission critical to life on planet earth as a follower of Christ. Please make sure you don't miss any of this if this is what you're really after, okay? I think this is key for us and our faith family here at MCC to be able to understand this. So let's start here, just recap a little bit. Who I am before salvation. We talked about this last week. It's in verses one through three. He said, you're dead, you're drifting, you're disobedient, you're driven by desire, and you are absolutely destined for destruction. You are in the crosshairs of God's wrath. That's who you are before Christ. Dead, drifting, destined for destruction. Desired is what drives everything that you do. And we talked about that last week. It's a brutal reality. But we said we have to diagnose what's actually wrong with us for us to actually be able to receive the cure that is the grace of God. And so today we're gonna lean into that. We're gonna talk about where Paul goes after helping us understand who we are in our brokenness and what we were before Jesus. We'll start in verse four. But God, I love this. You know, like we talked about last week, the two biggest conjunctions in the entire Bible, the biggest but in the entire Bible right here, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Now I want you to see this. This is the one-two punch of God. I love of his mercy and his love, his mercy and his love. So mercy can say to the person who has just completely been a traitor, a, turned his back on somebody, done an, an, an imaginable wrong to you. Mercy can say, I'm not gonna kill you. I'm not gonna punish you. But mercy doesn't necessarily say, you also have a seat at my table. And see, what I want you to see here is God is the good king who says to the traitor, I have mercy on you that I'm not gonna put you in the guillotine, but I have love for you. You can now eat at my table as well. It's the one-two punch of the grace of God that is his mercy and not punishing us what we do deserve and his love that doesn't just say you're forgiven, I'm gonna let you off, but love says you can eat at my table. You're a part of the family. And this God who is rich in mercy because of the great love which he loves us, verse five, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Let's try to unpack this phrase by phrase. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. So maybe you're going, what in the world, what does it mean to be dead in my trespasses? You know, we talked about this early on, we were going through Ephesians. Well, what do you mean when you mean dead? Like none of us are reading this and are actually dead or we couldn't be reading this. So what is biblical deadness? Well, I would explain it like this. You remember when we spent like eight weeks going through the story of the prodigal son? If you go back to the story of the prodigal son, he wants, the, this a younger brother, he wants all the money from his father, he wants his inheritance, he goes to his dad, he says, dad, give me this stuff. 
in asking that question and, and asking his father to do that, he was essentially saying to his father, you are dead to me, so give me what usually happens when you die. He takes that inheritance, the father gives that to him. He goes out and he lives out in the far country. He has an epiphany and he realizes that I'm going to die out here if I don't go back and try to work things back out with my father, at least to the place where I can be a hired indentured servant and just get enough food to live. I'm not trying to be his son again. I'm just trying to not die. So the son comes back. Father meets him halfway on the road, brings him in, welcomes him in and starts to put a ring on his finger, robe on his back, brisket on the grill, throws a party. Now the, young, the older son who stayed at home, he's freaking out. He's very angry. He refuses to join in on the party. And the father goes out to him as well. And he talks to him. And if you remember some of the things that the father said to the older brother, you remember him saying, son, we had to party. We had to celebrate because your brother who was lost has now been what? And then he goes on. This is what I think he means when he says, you're dead in your trespasses. When Jesus is telling this story to help us understand the kingdom of God and how God operates and how his grace is made manifest in our lives, he then, the, the father then says, your son, your older brother, or my son, your older brother, he was dead, but he is now alive. Now, what the prodigal father in that story is not saying is that your, your, your younger brother had a resurrection while he was in the far country. No, he, was not, he didn't die out there. He's saying he was dead to our family when he took the inheritance and he went and wasted it, it was as if he was dead to us. He had no part in us. It was as if that there was no belonging to our family name anymore. And he had, there was no obligation for me, you or your mother to ever give him any sort of nod in our family because he was, the way we talk about it, you're dead to me. It's indifference. Now, the question then becomes, if the, younger son was dead, who killed him? How did he die? I think this gets to the heart of what's going on here. It was suicide. He killed himself because he was dead in his transgressions. He was dead in his trespasses. He was dead in his sins. That's what killed any hope of being connected to the father. Unless the father so chooses to resurrect unless the father so chooses to make something that was dead alive. And so for us, obviously none of us are dead, but because of our trespasses, because of our sins, we, are, we have been in the same way that the father, again, picture the father, mother, and older brother at the house. That was us on the outside, living in the far country, dead to the things of God because we chose to live for ourselves. We chose to live for the world. And again, to go back to verses three and four, we chose to live under the influence of the, spirit that is at work in this world of our enemy, Satan. So Paul comes on, he says, you were dead in your trespasses, but God has made us alive together with Christ, which takes us to our first thing. If you're taking notes, what God did at salvation, he resurrected us. He rose us up. He took this life that was 100% totally dead, incapable of finding hope, of finding a place, of, of being able to save itself. Again, go back to the prodigal son story. What the son wanted to do is he wanted to be able to stay alive by working for the father. And the father comes in and says, no chance. I'm gonna make you alive, but I'm also gonna make you back a part of this family. I'm gonna give you your real life back. 
not this half-hearted attempt at life that's all based off of what good you can do to repay me that you could never repay. So he comes in and he tells him that you've been resurrected. The best place I could take you to help you understand what in the world this actually means is Romans 6, verses 6 to 11. This is an amazing Bible verse. If you don't have this one chock full of highlighted stuff in your Bible, um, you're missing out. Here's what it says, Romans 6, 6. The best thing I do to explain what it means to be resurrected, to be made alive in Christ. So he says this, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, which hold up, stop, wait a minute. You've got to get this, all right? A lot of times when we think, oh, I've been made alive with Christ. What we don't realize is that my old life had to die and be crucified with Christ in order for that to happen. So it's two sides of the same coin. If I'm alive in Christ, that means my old life, my old sinful ways of thinking, my old operating system, it was crucified with Christ. It's dead, it's gone, it's over, it's done with. It was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be, I love these words, brought to nothing. So my old life was crucified with Christ so that my old life might be brought to nothing. My old body of sin. I don't know about you, but I think about my body of sin. And there are days, guys, there are days when it doesn't feel like it's being brought to nothing. There are days when I feel the pain and I feel the angst of temptation and it feels like it's almost everything. And it's everything I can do to pass by and just hold on to Jesus just long enough for the temptation to pass. And you felt that. So when Paul says, hey, like we've been crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. We're like, where is that? When does that happen? Can we, can we put that on the calendar? Because it feels like it's everything sometimes. It's everything I can do to not sin. It's everything I can do to not say that word. It's everything I can do to not look at that. It's everything I can do to not spread that juicy detail, to not do whatever I want. But he says, that old life has been crucified with Christ. So the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Enslaved. So before Christ, you were a slave to it. It wasn't like you could just choose when you would or when you weren't. You were a slave to it because of your flesh. This is our fallen state. He says, for one who has died has been, I love this word, set free. So I was a slave, but I've been set free. I've been actually set free from sin, which I hope, I hope and pray you start thinking about sin this way, that you've actually been set free from it. So when temptation comes, you go, no, I've been set free from that. I don't have to do that. That's my old slave master. That's not my, my, my new master, my new King Jesus. That's the old life. I've been set free from that. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That's awesome. We're gonna get more into that in a second. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, he will never die again. He's not gonna go back and die. He doesn't have to go re-die to pay for your new sins. He died once for all. He will never die again. And death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now he tells us what to do. This is actually verse 11. He says, so you must also, now this is the key here. If we're gonna ever figure out how do, I, how do I, the sin really die? How do I really been able to feel and experience this reality and truth that you're telling me is real, that I am no longer a slave to sin, but it kind of feels like it, that I'm made alive to Christ, but sometimes it doesn't feel like it. How in the world does that actually come to fruition in my everyday, in McDonough, in Hampton, in Locust Grove, whatever life? How does that become real? He tells them what to do. So you must also consider. So this is like, the same way my Bible is placed on this table, he's saying, consider, place this in your mind. Place your mind on this. Consider this. Have this in your weaponry, in your mental assault against Satan's temptation. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. 
And I don't know about you, but sometimes when sin comes my way, I don't consider myself dead to it. I entertain it. I try to make reasons why this is really not that bad. I sometimes can find myself talking myself into it of maybe why I deserve a little leeway because of how much I suffer. See, what he's after here is you've got to take this this God-given, new restored mind and actually get to this place where when the temptation comes, now you're able to stand your ground and go, I'm dead to that. And that's what I consider. I'm not alive to, I don't live it. That's my old life. That's my old way. That's not who I am. I consider myself dead to sin. And I consider myself alive to God. And so we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, if I'm dead to sin and alive to God, I'm supposed to consider myself now dead to the sin. Not, it's not just something I'm struggling with. Then again, this is wild. What this means is, and we don't think about this because we think, oh, I struggle with it. And we say things like that, right? I struggle with lust. Consider yourself dead to sin. So the sin and its power, I have really been set free from it. And I believe there's power in our words. And sometimes the 40-ish minutes that I preach to you, they are unequivocally not enough for you. You need you preaching to you. you like your mental dialogue has got to be fiery against Satan and all his attempts to get you to fall. And so a mental dialogue that just goes along the lines of I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with, I spend a little bit too much money because I'm thinking about myself or I just got this worry and I can't get over this. I just dwell on things and I ruminate and I just make things worse than they really are or something happens and I write a story in my head about how you know they're really thinking about this and then you know I can be really good while I'm all around people but then I get in my car and I go, well, what did she mean by that? And then I start this, argument that I'm having with her, even though she's not in the room. And what I believe he's after here is us changing our mental dialogue. See, the battle is lost and won right in between your ears. That's why he says, consider. You cannot consider with your heart. You don't consider with your body. You consider with your mind. And so what I believe he's after here is going, I consider myself dead to this. So it is in in a way changing our dialogue to say, I do not struggle with lust. I'm dead to lust. I'm dead to shame. I'm, I'm dead to pride. I'm dead to overeating. I'm dead to debt. I'm dead to my shame. I'm dead to these things. It's dead. And that's how we begin to actually walk in this life that is alive to God because we are believing and proclaiming that these are the things that we are dead to, that we actually are crazy enough to believe that Jesus has set me free of them. Instead, we still believe that like our freedom is in process. Like we have to check the tracking number on our freedom. Is it here yet? Is it here? No, friend, it's arrived. And the person and the place of Jesus in your life, if you're in Christ, your freedom has arrived. Live in it. And know that you are. It says you've, you've been made alive in Christ. And he goes on from there. In the back half of this verse, he says, okay, So first of all, we've been raised up with him. He has resurrected this dead life, okay? Which again, right there would just be enough, okay? We're not dead anymore. Great. But he says, you 
are been made alive and then you're made alive with Christ. And then he says, and you've been raised, he's raised us up with him. Which if you're looking at, it, you're kind of like, okay, are you just re-emphasizing alive? No, I think they're actually different things. See, he made you alive, but then he also raised you up with Christ, which takes us to the second part of this. What has God done at salvation is he resurrected us and he raised us, which I don't think that this is just a dog pile on being made alive. It's being resurrected, that you have now have new life inside of you. But at the same time, it's you have been raised with Christ. He's raised us up to the place where Christ is. He elevates us out of the sin, disease, muck, and mire that is this earth and says, I'm gonna create a people who can rise above because they've been set free of this world. They've been set free of this flesh. They've been resurrected out of this. Now they can actually rise above it. Philippians 2 verses 6 to 11, it's this amazing line. And it gives us a hint as to how Jesus was raised not just resurrection, but being risen up to a place of authority. Paul is talking to the church in Philippi and he says, have this attitude among you. It's the very attitude of Christ who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be held onto, but he released that and he took on the very nature of a servant and slave. And because he humbled himself, he became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And because of that, because he was humbled down to the lowest flows, says that God exalted him to the highest highs, that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And so why do I not feel like I'm rising above? Why do I not feel like my life is being raised up? How did Jesus get raised? Through humility. How will you be raised? Through humility. Now, humility is not just, oh man, I'm so bad at this life. I'm just... Uh, just wallowing self-pity. That's not humility. That may be honesty, but that's not humility. Because what that really is, is that's, that's borderline idolatry. Because what you're really worshiping there is not God. What you're really worshiping is how you worship. Let me explain. When you have a really good day, you have your quiet time, you pray a little bit, you're nice to your kids, you don't cuss in traffic. When you get home that day and you lay your head down on your pillow, you're like, oh, it was a good day. And you feel good about your relationship with Jesus. But you gotta be careful because you may feel good about your relationship with Jesus, not because of what Jesus has done for you, but what you did for him that day. And what happens then is then we sleep in because we, we slept so good because we were thinking about how great of a day we had with Jesus. We sleep in, we don't get up, we don't have a quiet time. Day kind of goes to the, you know, goes to the birds. We, we cuss like a sailor in traffic and we're not nice to our wife when we get home and just kind of everything is crud. And then that day we lay our head on the pillow and we're like, I'm such a failure. Be careful that you're not worshiping how you worship and that you're actually worshiping Jesus and what he's done, not what you're doing. See, if our eyes are on him, the spiritual discipline and the life transformation will actually happen. And it takes humility to go, Jesus, I know you have a plan. I know you have a purpose. I know you wanna do great things in my life. And I want those to be things that are for you as this great God, but I gotta just surrender all this to you. And I wanna see you, I wanna see your glory. I wanna see you on display through my life in these places as I'm doing these things. And that humility is I think what rises up above our own propensity to worship how we worship. And it takes humility to get our eyes off of ourself and this measuring stick that we have as to whether or not I'm spiritual or not. And to put our eyes back on Jesus and say, I'm just running headlong after you and your will. 
and I'm going to fail, but you never will. So it goes on from there. It says he raised us up with him, and this is where it gets confusing, but awesome. He said he raised us up with him and seated us with him. This is why I think these really are three things, because after all three of these, he says he's made us alive with him. He has raised us up with him, and he has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. What I think he's referencing at here is he's trying us to get us to understand that royalty has been restored. He says he has seated us with Christ. I would ask you the question, well, where is Jesus sitting? He's at the right hand of God. That's that whole Philippians 2, 6 to 11 verse. He's, God has exalted him to his right hand and he is the name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So if, if God is in heaven, he's ruling and reigning over everything. If Jesus is at his right hand, and then this passage here, Paul is telling us that, hey, you've been resurrected, you've been raised, and now you're not just kind of like up there, you actually have a seat. And if Jesus is at the right hand and you're right with him, then you're right there which is kind of mind-boggling. So it takes us to the third thing, is he reinstated our royalty. Now, let me take you back to, to why, why, what I mean by this. I'm not just trying to preach some like, I don't know, prosperity gospel, like you're a God's king's kid, so you deserve to be riding in a Mercedes Benz or never have disease or anything. That's not what I'm saying. But if you go back to God's original game plan for humanity, if you go back to Genesis, he created Adam and Eve in this beautiful environment and he created them knowing that he was giving them things to rule and to reign over. That he gave them dominion. He said, name this. He gave them uh, this ability to provide and protect for this environment they gave them, specifically to Adam. He, he wanted Adam to, to be a king with boots on the ground there in that environment. And over and over again, if you then go back into scripture, if you see, Timothy talks about this, Revelation talks about this. It talks about us reigning with God. And again, I just reference back. If Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, and then this verse says, you are seated with him. The, the implication is your royal dominion is being back restored. That I don't just have this cool place where I get to sit as a spectator in heaven, just kind of watch all the things going around. Cause that really sounds like a boring uh, idea of what heaven is going to be like, but I actually have a job. And I'm seated with him in that place that I get to rule and reign alongside Jesus because he didn't just come to create a family. He came to create a kingdom. And in his kingdom, you're not just subjects. Your royalty is part of what is in your new divine DNA by the blood of Christ spilt for you as the prince, as the son of God, the son of the king spills his blood for you. You now, when you're in Christ, that blood becomes your blood. His name becomes your name. Remember, go back to Ephesians 1. What did he say he was doing to you? He's adopting you as sons and daughters, not ones who stay in the basement. You're not even foster kids. It's much more than that. You get his blood, you get his DNA, you get his life, you get his kingdom. And I hope that that makes us less and less satisfied and less and less consumed with the places we get to sit here on earth. Because some of us have felt the sting of being rejected for a seat. Kind of like that scene from Forrest Gump, you know, he's going to school for the first time and he gets on the bus and he walks by all these redneck kids and <laughs> you know somebody already said it you know can't sit here and there's like plenty of room and they're shoving their books over seats taken and then finally 
sweet little Saint Jenny in the back, Jenny, in the back. Me and Jenny go together like peas and carrots. Uh, <laughs> I've only seen it a few times. Um, sweet Jenny invites him to sit there. Now, now, some of you have felt that, and not just on playgrounds and buses. Some of you, because the color of your skin, unfortunately, you have, felt, you have, have had people tell you that you can't sit here. You, you can't sit in this management position. You can't sit in this role. You can't sit with my, my, my daughter or my son because of what you look like. Some of you, because of your gender, you said that this role is not for you. You can't do this. You can't be here. Some of you are told you can't have a seat in this role or this spot, whether it's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's a place out of school, whether it's whatever it is that you can't sit here because you have too much sin or baggage in your life that you've made these mistakes so you can't do this yet. All times, and everybody in this room has felt this rejection of you don't get a seat here, but man, I pray that the next time that you're tempted to go, oh, and blame the world and get frustrated and to, 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 to feel all of that that you just remember, man. I got to see it at the only place that matters. I've got to see it at the only place that matters. Regardless of who can tell me no, or I can't sit here, I've got a place beside Jesus. And look, here's the good news. It's a managerial position. <laughs> like <laughs> you get to write, like you're not, you're, not a, you're not an intern in heaven. Like you're, he says, we're going to reign. Like there's going to be decisions that you get to weigh in on and, and you are able to lead and you're able to manage. And man, I, 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 my prayer is that that fires you up about going through this life, that there is more to come, that there is grace that you are, are going to experience. Now, again, the, the brutal rough part about this is if, if God has, you know, through salvation, he has resurrected us, he has risen us and he's raised us up and he's also reinstated our royalty. Well, well, so what right, 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 now, right now? Like that's kind of still tough because we live in this tension between what we call, and you've heard us talk about this, the already and the not yet. And God sits us smack dab in the middle of the already and the not yet so that we have hope. Hope that there is coming a time. And that's why if you, if you look at the tense of all these verbs, they're all what? past tense. You're, you've been made alive. You have been raised. You are seated. It's I'm, it's I'm getting into the already, not yet. I'm getting into what is coming. And to know that my soul, the, the part of my life that will last forever, it is with Christ. It is secure that I, I, could, I could be no less confident of my eternity in heaven with Christ as he is confident of his eternity in heaven. That that's mine. So the question now becomes to us, if this is where we're at and this is what we're living in, is that power made evident in your life? Is that what you're experiencing? If this is what happened at salvation, what's happening on Monday? And Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday to boil it down to, to maybe even a simpler question to ask as I invite the band to come back out and, and we get ready to go into a time of communion is to go back to that verse in Romans when he really says to consider. Like that's, of all the, thing, all the passages we've read through today, that's the only thing that had like a do this. And so as I leave you with your go out of here, try to do this, that's what I would take you back to. That Romans six eleven of consider yourself dead 
to sin and alive to Christ. And to begin to ask yourself that big question of what needs to die in my life? What do I need to allow to be completely 100% stay dead so that I can be more alive to Christ? And so that you could say with a confident declaration that my lust is dead, my shame is dead, my fear is dead, my depression is dead, my lying tongue is dead, it's dead. And I'm alive to love. I'm alive to grace. I'm alive to joy. I'm alive to peace. I'm alive to the hope that is before me in Christ. And that's where it all goes back to. Are you in Christ or are you not? Are you in him? Is he in you or not? my prayer is that as we get ready to receive communion, that we see the length that was taken by him to say, son, daughter, look at my blood shed for you. Look at my life sacrificed for you and take this power that was made evident in my life and allow it to apply to yours, which is, which is wild because like, track with me here. I want you to go back to Ephesians 1.19, all right? Ephesians 1.19, all the things that Paul just got through saying were ours in Christ that happened at salvation in that this power makes you alive. This power rises you up and this power reinstates your royalty as you're seated with Christ in a place of rule and authority. If you go back, and this is what, don't miss this because this is what Paul is trying to show us here. If you go back to 119, what he said right before this, he says this, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now track with us here. He's talking about what he did in Jesus. In Jesus, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, okay? So God said, I raised Jesus and I seated him at the right hand in my heavenly places. Far above all rule, authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. What he's saying here is the same power that God worked in Christ is the same power given to those who are in Christ. He says the exact same three things at the end of chapter one as he does at the beginning of chapter two. He says, this God resurrected Christ, ascended Christ to the right hand of God, and now has set him over all rule and authority, over all kingdom in this age and the age to come. And then he looks to wretched sinners like us and says, this same power that rose Christ, ascended Christ and gave him kingly authority is now resurrecting you, raising you up, and then giving you kingdom authority as well. And then... (laughs) we just kind of let our jaws fall to the floor and go, what kind of God would give traitors like us what he gave his only begotten son? Only a God like ours. Only a God like ours. And as I was reflecting on this this week, man, I realized that we really, like I shortchanged you this past Easter. 
Because like this past Easter, it showed up and I was like, take whatever sin you're struggling with, take whatever issue that's going on in your life, whether it's cancer or depression or anxiety, take whatever it is that is pounding against your life and beating you up from the inside out or the outside in, take whatever it is and apply resurrection power to that. And I gave you one third of what is really made available to God. I gave you resurrection power. But what Paul is saying here is, bro, you don't just have resurrection power. You've got resurrection power, you've got ascension power, and you've got royal power to rule and reign because you are seated with Christ in him. And guys, listen, that's the whole gospel, that all of those things are made available to us. And we get to choose to walk in that, to feel that, to experience that day in and day out in this new life that he's died to give us. My prayer is that as you come to a time of communion, that you realize that the God who did all of that for Jesus has done, is doing, and will do all of that for you. And let that overwhelm you in a way that only the gospel can. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your love, grace, mercy, and kindness to sinners like us. Today, uh, I pray that the simple message of the gospel was anything but tame inside of the human heart, that it ravaged old lies, that it broke through old strongholds, that it tore down idols that were built to anything but you. Jesus, we long for more than a show now as we worship but as we put these prayers to melody and sing these songs, Jesus, I pray that you are glorified, that even as we lift up in unison these words, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ in me, that this declaration becomes transformative inside the hearts and minds of your church today so that we walk out of here transformed to be salt and light, hope to a world that is hopeless not for the sake of getting more people to come to a church performance, but seeing a city formed into the image and likeness of Christ until you return. It's in your name we pray.